All right, we're live. Okaidi, welcome back to my channel, Made Between the Pages. My name is Taylor, and today I'm back with my co-hosts of Page Chewing, PL and Steve, uh, for the last episode of Page Chewing in 2022. And today, our guest is none other than Travis Baldry. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> of course, we are so excited. And anyone who watches my channel knows I'm such a huge fan of Legends and Lattes. So we'll get to that momentarily. But before we start, would you mind telling anyone who's watching who you are, if they've been living under a rock and they don't know, uh, and how you found yourself with us today? Um, well, my name is Travis Baldry. I am a full-time audiobook narrator. I've been doing that for, uh, gosh, COVID has made time very elastic, but it feels like I've been doing it full-time for three or four years. Uh, before that, I spent a couple of decades making video games like Torchlight and Torchlight 2, ran video game studios, and uh, then took a hard right and decided to narrate for a living, which I love a lot. Um, now, I guess I'm also an author. Uh, I wrote the book Legends and Lattes last year for National Novel Writing Month and self-pubbed it because I thought it would be fun and that maybe that would pay for my cover art. And now I'm sitting here and everything is has gone in very unexpectedly. <laughs> well, we're delighted that it is where it is. <laughs> uh, I know from my part, I happened to see your cover art on Twitter. You had posted it. And it, from my memory, at least the way things went down, is that cover art took off and you had uh, like a huge influx of interest for this book you were marketing. Uh, and if I remember correctly, the next tweet from you was, uh, this is a lot more than I expected. I have a newsletter now, I think. <laughs> so, you know, the interest in this cozy fantasy, you know, that you had introduced to the world kind of took off from the start. And for me, at least in my sphere, it was the first cozy fantasy I saw really do that. So I'm curious, from your perspective, what inspired you to go that route? Why the cozy fantasy? So as a narrator, I read a lot of action adventure stuff, usually with like a dude protagonist, you know, roughly 20 years of age, probably slightly snarky. Maybe there's also a snarky sidekick and I don't know, you know, battling gods and saving the world. And that stuff is all super fun and I really enjoy it. But I read a lot of it. <laughs> and I was joking around in my Discord where I, I work live. And I said, what what I really wish I had to read right now is a is a Hallmark movie set in the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> I just want like, and the joke I made at the time was like, I, I just want like this businesswoman dwarf and she has to go back to her dad's mind to save it from, you know, closing. And she's really cranky about it and all the yokels living back in the dwarven village. But also there's this kind of ruggedly handsome guy with this sweater and he, maybe he makes cookies or something and, you know, be very heartwarming. Um, so that's obviously not exactly what I wrote, but I had this, you know, not in a wink idea. Um, and that was probably a couple of that, months. Yeah, you know, now I got now I got to go back to the well. Um, that was a couple months before National Novel Writing Month. And uh, a co-narrator of mine, who's a good friend, convinced me to do National Novel Writing Month again. I've tried a bunch of times in the past, and I always tapped out in the middle in the boggy mess that I made. <laughs> um, and we both decided to do it, and we were National Novel Writing Buddies. And uh, I, at the time, I thought, well, I guess I'll do this this thing that sounds really good to me right now, this kind of... It's the height of COVID. I haven't been to a coffee shop and seen somebody's face in ages. 
it just sounded nice. You know, it was what I wanted to read at the time. Um, and uh, I guess it just turned out that other people were also wanting to read something like that, too. I feel like those things have existed before all over the place. But this one happened to come out at a time where everybody was sort of fatigued mm -hmm. and, you know, Zoom meetinged and, you know, isolationed mm -hmm. out. And the world was just always seemed to be hanging fire and <laughs> something, yeah. something comforting seemed like the order, you know, the order of business. Yeah. I can, I can attest to that as, I don't know if you can tell from my shelves behind me, surprise, I also read the same kind of stuff that you do. Uh, lots of, you know, high stakes saving the world. And uh, it was actually really nice to pick up this book and know that wasn't going to happen. I was like, oh, there's not going to be any world ending catastrophe. You know, it was a comfort. <laughs> you know, um, I found myself watching a lot of like Studio Ghibli movies in the last year, like because they have that same sort of like peaceful vibe also and a lot of focus on food. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, they're just like mm -hmm. this this sensory peacefulness in a lot of them. I mean, except for, you know, up on Poppy Hill. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we won't we won't talk about it. We won't, we won't talk about or, that. Or Grave of uh, the Fireflies. <laughs> or Grave of the Fireflies. Let's just keep those set those to the side. But um, uh yeah, that that vibe is just very, and, and again, they have lots of they have lots of fantasy elements that I like, but I feel good after I watch them. <laughs> yeah, a man after my own heart. I live in Japan, and my husband and I watch Ghibli all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how but this is the first time Ghibli's come up in a chat. So I don't know how my co-hosts feel about those, but the cozy vibe is on point, mm. as you just mentioned. We'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get you guys to watch it. How am I? Yeah, you get you. You kind of got to You got to You know, that's you sneak them in with uh, with. Um, well, what are the best ones to sneak people in on if they're not ready for the cozy vibes? It's probably uh, got to be Princess Howl Mononoke or Princess Mononoke, maybe. It's yeah. kind of a good way to sneak people in. Um, and then you transition to Howl and Ariete yeah. and All that stuff. everything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, one of my favorite things in the book for me personally that I connect to just while we're on the subjects of uh, Legends and Lattes specifically, um, I own a small uh, business with my husband. It is mm -hmm. a he's a, a chef here. And so uh, in our spare time, we decided to try an experiment of opening a small little restaurant. It's a fried chicken shop. Uh, and when I say in our spare time, I mean, we had other jobs and then we decided to, to see how this would work on our days off. And let me tell you, there's, if you've never owned a small business, it is work, my friends. And um, I saw in this book, like Viv does, Viv is, is the name of the uh, orc and she does market research <laughs> to find out where she's going to set up her coffee shop. <laughs> it slipped in there, you know, in a fantasy setting. Um, also the menu she has at the beginning doesn't stick. She has to change it little by little because her ideas don't actually translate to the real world. And as someone who has had that experience has changed the menu on the dot <laughs> in the way that she does in this book as well. I was like, I know Travis has owned a small business at some point in his life. <laughs> if all these little details are in there. Um, so from me personally, this is a very one set, you know, question from me specifically, but I was curious if those details came from a life experience or they just kind of flowed naturally with the story. Um, 
so I've never owned or, or started a restaurant. I've started several <laughs> companies and gone through the um, painful bumps and bruises of starting a company. And I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the experiences are universal. They just get adapted to whatever the specifics of the the job are. You know, nothing ever goes the way you expect. There's always this adaptation. Um, finding people that you can work with is always a big deal. It's always terrifying that somebody's not going to want what you're doing or not interested in what you're doing. There's just all these little fears and dramas and stresses to it um, that are not, they're kind of mundane dramas and stresses, but they feel pretty important at the time. So, you know, one way or another, those ended up in there. Also, I spent a staggering amount of time in like some very specific coffee shops talking to the owners and hearing about how those experiences happened for them and what their specific challenges were. And it's hard not to absorb those. That's, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Um, I think for me, <clears throat> excuse me, I know we, we have so many questions for you. Mm -hmm. I think for me, that one of the things that um, I think a lot of people wanna know, I certainly do is, is this journey that you've been on that just seems so fantastic and congratulations on this all the success like how you came from okay well i'll you know enter this contest and i'll write a book and you know and then suddenly you know you it starts off as self-published you somewhere along the line get an agent perhaps or you had one and then you end up traditionally publishing getting a book deal and then suddenly and not suddenly but i mean obviously you're in it then you're a new york times best-selling author like how did all this happen? Um, so uh, after writing it, I I like to learn stuff. I like to know how to do things. Obviously, I've done different kinds of jobs a lot, and I'm a serial hobbyist. Um, and I work with authors all the time that are all indie published for the most part. I work with tons of indies. Um, Will White's probably the best known of them. He's like, he's, he, A, he's a great guy. His family's amazing. They're just lovely to work with. Um, I wanted to see what they went through and I had a book. So I uh, bartered with another author that I work with who is also an editor and I narrated one of her books in exchange for an edit. And we did it slowly over the course of December and I commissioned some art. I got a lot of experience doing that from games. So no problem commissioning art. Um, and uh, when I had, and I learned, you know, vellum and the ebook layout and the print layout and had fun doing all the stuff, getting my print proofs and, um, I also made one decision that ended up being really important in retrospect that was offhand at the time. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, most indie authors just publish through Amazon and most people only buy an ebook and you can put up a paperback for people to get, but most people don't buy them. It's usually like 1% of their sales, maybe because people just get the ebook and that's it. Um, and in general, there's no way you're going to get those in a store because bookstores do not want to order from Amazon. Amazon won't take returns on paperbacks that don't sell, so they don't do that. But there's another service that you can use called Ingram Spark, which is run by Ingram, who does all of the book distribution for most bookstores. And it's similar to Amazon's paperback books, but you can allow for returns, and it's overall a lot more cumbersome, and it costs you like 45 bucks to list the book. It takes weeks to get it done, whereas Amazon is like, 48 hours from now, your book can be orderable. Um, but I did it just because I thought it would be cool to go down to my local bookstore and wheedle with them to order it in so I could take a picture of it. 
So anyway, I did this and I set all this stuff up. Um, and uh, then, as as you mentioned, I posted the picture of the the cover art on Twitter just because I got it and I was happy with it and I thought it looked cool. And then Sean and McGuire retweeted it. And that's probably why you ended up seeing it, because Sean was kind of my my little fairy godmother sprinkling fairy dust all over this at that point. Um and I already had the book kind of done and ready to go. And I, I said, well, I guess I better turn the pre-orders on. <laughs> so I did. Um, and the pre-orders were really good, you know, from that kind of wash of interest. Um, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to market things for books. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know where the surface area for any of that is or what to do. Um, and then it goes on sale and it also does really well. Um, and it starts to spread kind of organically. Um, and then it started showing up in a few indie bookstores because I had set up this paperback orderability that bookshops would actually use. And then it got in Barnes and Nobles and that was crazy. Um, and I, some of the Barnes and Nobles employees and booksellers that got it in there told me what happened. So at Barnes and Nobles, they don't let you get like print on demand books. That's like the official policy is we're not, we're not putting this stuff on the shelves. Um, but one thing you can do if you work at a Barnes and Noble is that you can order a book in for yourself from wherever, but if you cancel that order after it arrives, it converts to in-store stock. So what they would do is they would order copies in for themselves, cancel it, and then put it on the shelf and hand sell it. And once they had done that, and once it sold, then they could talk to whoever was running the store and say, oh, hey, we've sold like X copies of this. Can we order more? And then the dam starts to break. And then all of the stores are kind of like in regional clusters. So they all communicate between the stores. So then it starts to spread between the stores. And then it shows up and then it spreads to other stores and other stores. So it, like at some point it ended up being like most Barnes and Nobles, which is crazy. It makes no sense. Um, I said earlier that like the paperback sales are normally like 1% on Amazon. For me, they were more or less equal to the eBooks. They were nearly identical. So it was like, wow. it was really, I, I assume that a lot of this has to do with the cover art, I think, mm -hmm. but like, <laughs> I don't know. My sample size is one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at that point, um, I think three different agents reached out to me because I think more and more books are converting from indie to, to traditional, like Senlin Ascends and Rage of Dragons and, you know, uh, Atlas Six. So this is just happening more and more often. I mean, at that point, it had already been way more successful than I could have ever expected or wanted it to be. And I thought, I mean, I guess, why not? <laughs> I'll try it. Because I still have, I'm still gainfully employed and I wasn't looking to quit and become a writer. I like narrating audiobooks. It's great. So why not? Why not? Um, so I said yes. And uh, to Stevie Finnegan, who is my agent from Zeno in the UK. Um, and so she went out and shopped it around to pubs. And I think within like 48 hours, Tour UK had came back with a timed offer, um, which is something that they do to prevent a bidding war. They, they say, I will, we'll give you this, and this is more than we might otherwise give, but you need to answer within this X day window. So, and I've always thought Tour was great. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh my God, a Tour logo, woo. Um, <laughs> so I ended up saying yes. Um, and uh, that was with Tor UK. And then I started to learn about how this all works. So Tor UK is not the same as Tor US. They're totally different. Um, they're just owned by the same company, Macmillan. Um, so 
that was just covering it being in the UK. And, but then they sold the foreign rights to Tor US. The weird thing is that Tor US had to bid for them, even though they're owned by the same company. Not only did really? they have to bid for them, but they had to bid for them against other companies also owned by Macmillan, like St. Martin's Press and whatever. Hmm. I don't understand. Oh. I still don't understand how this actually functions, like in any sort of real way. It seems crazy to me, but that's how it works. Um, and uh, so then it was just kind of like a, a sort of a a very fast conversion to paperback. Um, this is much shorter than the normal lead time for paperback. So it took longer to do the paperwork to finalize the agreement than it did to write, edit, and publish the <laughs> self-pub. Um, so that finished up, I think, like June 1st or something like that. And then um, it was just kind of a mad dash to get everything ready to launch it in November again as a paperback. So the audiobook and the ebook, I kind of like passed ownership to them. We took down the paperback and then was just trying to get a new one going. Um, so I think I sold like 16,000 indie paperbacks, pretty evenly split between Amazon and stores, which is kind of a, my understanding is kind of a That's lot. Incredible. That's incredible. Um, it's, a, it's a lot. I could tell you as an indie author that it's a lot. Um, and, uh, but we've definitely done more than that in paperbacks now. Um, I don't know how that's, I can, I can tell you what numbers I got because that's my numbers. Um, um, and then we, we put together like uh, slightly different versions. They were like special editions, like the broken binding one. And then we did a Barnes and Noble special edition. And I wrote a short really quick in a couple of days because we needed unique stuff. And uh they said, can we, can we have French flaps and we need to put some paper in these that has other stuff. What can we do in the next two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, I put together a map and we did some French flap designs and uh, I made like Viv's journal pages and, and we put those in there too. Um, it was kind of just a, it was just a really weird whirlwind. Um, but through it all, it's also, it's also been really nice because the response has been so nice. And I think some of that's probably because of the kind of book it is. It's a book about people being nice and competent. Somebody called it competence porn. It's just like people just doing things and they're, they're being so adults about it and figuring out how to do that's it. Awesome. And it's very satisfying because they just do it. Um, right. So when people respond, it's usually because of those things. And so the responses are just always nice. And I started getting fan art, piles of fan art, and it's really great. And then tattoos. And those are really crazy. And I don't even know what to do with that because I feel like guilty, like a weird guilt. Like, oh, no, I made something and you put it on your body. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> um, well, I then, can say as someone who is a tattoo collector, the motif of your book is very easy to turn into a tattoo. A little coffee cup. Dundee. Well, see, and that's what I thought, you know, if somebody was going to do something. Somebody did like a coffee co coat of arms, but mostly it's been thimble. Lots of baking rats, lots of baking rats, <laughs> which I, he was far and away the most popular character in the book. I get more notes about Thimble and pictures of Thimble and obviously tattoos of Thimble. And like, he says like 12 words. <laughs> He's <laughs> he really quiet. You know, confectionery. So he makes, he makes good food. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, and then we launched it in November. It did really well. It's still on the indie bestseller list. I don't know how many weeks, five five weeks later or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, mostly I just feel like I just 
accidentally stumbled into it because it again we talked about it earlier it feels like it's just kind of like a very timing specific thing like people are wanting something like this but it's not like this kind of thing didn't exist it's just this one i think the cover makes the premise really really obvious it says exactly on top of the book exactly what it is it's high fantasy it's low stakes nothing's gonna bug you here <laughs> um it's uh and i think it just happened to come out at the right time and i didn't fumble it completely so i i wish i could i kind of wish i could say that i had really like planned this and i really knew what i was doing but i i just absolutely did not i just made something that i thought i wanted and was very surprised that anybody else wanted it too um uh but it's been it's been very gratifying yeah whether it was intentional or not you had your finger on the pulse that's all i wanted to say steve go ahead i was just gonna ask uh did you have any? Did you have any concerns when the rights were sold to Tor? Did you? Were there any? Was there any hesitation there of giving away that control of the book and what you've created? Was there any any worries you had with that process? Um, so in my initial discussions with him, a lot of it was based on my vibe with the people that I talked to. I I really liked the editors that I talked to: Georgia Summers and Bella Pagan um, at Tor UK and uh, Lindsay Hall at Tor US. I just really got along well with them, and they didn't. They didn't want to really change anything either. They're like, we liked the book. It was well edited. You know, we can just release it. So we did, uh, we went through another copy edit on it. So like a handful of words changed several because I wanted to change them. Hmm. Um, and it was like Reeve copy edited for tour house style, but they, it didn't, there wasn't, wasn't a situation where like, oh, this book has promise and we want to change all these things that are important to you. It was like, we like this book. We just want to release it. Which, which didn't feel scary to me. Um, and that was kind of reaffirmed to me like at every step since then. When I wrote the short, when we're going through the editorial process, it's very collaborative. It's not like we need you to do this and this and this. It's very like, here's what I'm thinking. You don't have to take my advice. Hmm. Um, so, and the same thing happened for the second book. Um, I... Um, I, I've, I've just really liked working with them and I haven't regretted it. It's been really cool. It's been really cool. And there's things that you get as part of doing TradPub that you just can't get as an indie, like translations. I feel like there's going to be like 10 languages so far that it's getting translated in. I would never do that. I would never get a foreign rights agent and do that. But to have it done is is pretty amazing. Um, and it's, I, I for the first time, I flew somewhere. I was in the Boston airport and I saw copies of my book in a Hudson news and I just went up and signed them. I didn't ask anybody. I was just way too terrified. I just stealth signed them. If they said no, I would probably have cried, but I, I <laughs> it was the coolest thing. And that's another experience that I probably just would never have had. Um, I, I clearly I'd never would have had the fact that it's a New York times thing is again, I, I, I have difficulty processing this. It doesn't make any sense to me at all, but again, it's another thing that, that would never have happened. So I, I've had nothing but positive experiences as a result of it. And I kind of got to do both. I, I sort of got the best of both worlds. I got to do it indie and it was fun. And then I got to do the other side of things and it was also fun. It's a little different and the timelines are different, but the experience has been great. And I get to work with other people who care about books and care about releasing books. And it's just been universally positive. I just had a, a couple comments that were on this topic here that I definitely agree with. We have here, 
the BNN Employee Initiative is so heartwarming. And that's really cool that those BNN employees, uh, of those BNN employees to help get your books on their shelves. And I definitely agree with this. It sounds not only like your timing was perfect, but everyone kind of worked together to make this happen. Everybody else got out and pushed and is the one that made anything happen. People on TikTok, uh, YouTube, Instagram, there were so many people who like shared the book with other people. Mm. None of this would have happened without them. Um, I also did a very small like signing tour before I signed with Tor because BNN folks reached out to me and said, hey, you're in Washington. Do you want to come by and sign some books? We'll order a bunch in mm. and we'll do it. It was crazy. Why not? You know, it was just, it, why, sure, that sounds great. I'm in, I'm in Candyland. This sounds great. Um, <laughs> yeah. at, at every step where something cool has happened, it's almost always been somebody else really pushing to make it happen. You know, from Shannon sharing the book and then reading it later when it came out and saying nice stuff about it and pointing people to it. Then on my birthday, she said, you know, we should get this up into the top 100. So she just pumped it for a day to get into the top 100 on Amazon just because it was my birthday. Wow. Um, people just did nice wow. things that I didn't have anything to do with. And it's really, I don't know, I feel very humbled. And I don't know, it's like those comments said, it's super heartwarming. It definitely is for me. Yeah. Yeah. I have sure. to say, from my perspective, it's nice to hear of that kind of collaboration happening in traditional publishing as well, because something that you know, Steve and PL have really introduced me to through being on page doing is the world of indie and self pub. I was new to it about two years ago. Um, and page doing has had a lot of indie and self pub authors on it. And the mentality of if one person rises, we all rise is very prevalent in most of the indie world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's why it can be such a joy or such a good experience to be part of it. And it's really nice to hear that, you know, Sean and people who are traditionally published have that mentality as well, because I think it's easy to see that as, you know, kind of the crabs in the bucket. You know, if you're looking yeah. from the outside, it kind of looks like that, you know. It, it feels like the division between indie and traditional is getting like smaller and smaller over time for like a lot of reasons. I mean, once upon a time, there was like that stink of indie publishing where it's like it's vanity press. I think that's all but gone at this point, mm -hmm. because the books that people put out at the Indie are professionally edited with excellent covers, often well-considered marketing, very specific release plans, you know, analyzed data about how the Amazon algorithm works, what should be your release cadence, when should you, when should you do sales, what's the value of Kindle Unlimited, there's so much that goes into it. Um, and I see that all the time with the Indies that I work with. It's just, I just, I just don't think they're at this, the stigma, the stigma of indie, I think has nearly evaporated. And obviously traditional publishing has recognized to a certain extent that that stigma has evaporated. And for them, it's almost like, it's like a pre-sorting, like so much of a book's success is based just on the people that read it and what they say to other people. And that's not controlled by indies and that's not controlled by traditional. It's just controlled by readers and influencers. And so they're just looking for the same thing, a book that actually that people pass around. <laughs> um, uh, and I know quite a few indies who have very successful series that are approached by traditional publishing and then just say no, because they're doing great. They don't need it. 
um, and they value the control and they value the speed of release and it's their and they value the 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 ability to steer their career um, and which is totally valid. That's great. And, uh, you know, thank you so much, uh, Travis, for, um, you know, in the vein of your book itself, some positive, great news about Barnes and Nobles. You know, we, we won't get into that, but we all know the Barnes and Nobles has been trashed recently for a few things that have been going on. But hey, Barnes and Nobles employees really helped bolster yeah, your career. You know. So, and remember, there's, there's people behind the machine. There's people. Yeah, the, yeah, there's the machine. And then there's just people who were down there selling books, probably not being paid that great, but just care about books and care about readers exactly. and care about getting things into the hands of people that want to read them. And they're the same people that might be working at an indie bookstore. There's a lot of them are going to move back and forth between them. There's just it's just people out there. It's just about people, not so much about the the store. That's just the edifice that this stuff is happening in, because there was tons of people in indie bookstores that did the same thing. Um, it's just more surprising when it's Barnes and Noble. And if you say it, people are like, what? <laughs> um, because the fact that it penetrated that firewall of corporateness is a little weird. But also a credit, you know, you're a very humble guy, but a credit to that you wrote an outstanding book. And yeah. yes, you know, it, you know, you can say about catching lightning in a ball at the same time, but you obviously wrote a book that really resonated with people. That was fantastic. And, uh, you know, Kudos to you for for doing it. You're you're living the dream. So, you know, big applause to you, my friend. Thank you. It feels yeah. It feels really really odd, <laughs> unbelievably <laughs> odd. Um. Uh, I I still don't really think of myself as a writer. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. Now that there's a second book, I feel like I can. I feel like slightly less of an imposter. I managed to do it a second time, which was hard. Everybody told me that the second book was hard, but I didn't realize how hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a variety of reasons too. I, I threw away three different versions of the second book before I finished, before I got one that stuck. It was, and I was, I was panicking increasingly with each one that I trashed. Um, <laughs> Because I was sure I knew what I was going to do. I was positive. So the second book was going to be a cozy mystery set in the same city as Legends and Lattes. It was going to have different main characters. It's basically, you know, like fantasy murder she wrote, right? Mm. Which it was going to have to do with the magical college. We were going to learn a bit about how the magical system worked. You were going to learn about the madrigal and like her influence over the city, you know, I, it had, it was also about books and a bookstore. And, um, I mean, I had it all outlined. I had like a 10,000 word outline. I knew everything that was going to happen. And I got about 30,000 words into writing. And I was like, oh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it so much. Um, because it all felt very mechanical, like getting this person here to do this thing. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was over planning. I don't know if it was, I just didn't understand the heart of the book. Um, but then I was just in a panic and tossed it and then started over. And I kept trying to salvage and figure out what it was that I should write. And it was difficult for a couple of reasons. One, I think it was just, it's hard to do a second book, period. But the other part of it was that I hadn't expected anybody to read or care about the first book and I wrote it in isolation. It didn't matter what anybody thought of it while I was writing it. And so as I'm writing it, I'm thinking, well, it has to kind of fit in with the other book, but it doesn't have coffee. Are people going to be mad? It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have this it's not about renovating a shop are people going to be mad it doesn't it's not, you know what element and, and 
who am I going to disappoint? And just the fact that there was an audience for it at all was a little, uh, it was like being a deer in the headlights. Um, but I had a really tough time separating out. So I felt bad while I was writing it, but it was really hard to separate it. If I felt bad because there was something fundamentally wrong with the story, or if I felt bad because I was worried about that. And it took me three tries to separate the two and understand which feeling was which. Um, it was just very nauseous for weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> um, and I finally, when I, when I caught the, the tail of the thing that I actually wrote, it became apparent what it was. It was like, okay, you know what? I actually understand why this is working and why I want to write it. And that feeling is very different from the still abject terror I have that people aren't going to like what I wrote. But on the front of the book, I understand why I wrote it and I did it. And I'm, my heart will be in my throat when it comes out and I'll feel really sick, you know, before you read it jitters, but it'll, that's a different feeling. And now I know what that is at least. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. forward motion at least i learned something <laughs> <laughs> well i have to say making a book about books is a good move you're not gonna disappoint anyone with that one <laughs> you know we love books about books <laughs> so the second book is a prequel it's set about 20 years before the first book and it's about viv when she's younger and she's still all in on adventuring and she gets wounded and sidelined in this crappy beach town and uh, she befriends the really foul-mouthed owner of of failing bookstore. And she's sort of stuck there. Um, and the book is basically about, like, all those little chance meetings and things that happen to you earlier on in your life that don't manifest until, like, you know, way later. And you look back and you're like, oh, my God, the only reason I ended up here and the only reason I know these people and the only reason I care about these things is because of that person who I just happened to bump into way back when. Um, and it's also about books and like how we see each other people through books. Like it's like, they're like little windows and where the author and you are communicating in a way you're like seeing someone, you, you show yourself to someone else and they see it. And that moment when you see someone else and you recognize yourself in it is like this really powerful moment with books. Um, and so it's, it's where Viv learns to enjoy reading. She didn't care about it before. And um, also there's lots of skeletons in it, but uh, it's um, anyway, we'll see how it goes, but it's just, it's a very different kind of book and it it ultimately interlocks with the other book, but it's not about the same kind of things. Um, So of course I'm terrified, but (laughs) that sounds, I liked writing it and I liked the people. Yeah. What you said reminds me of something that Ken Liu has mentioned before is that the writer leaves a ghost of himself in the story for someone to interact with. And that I'm hundred, I was 110% in already, but I'm now 150% in because I I can't wait to read that. (laughs) Um, So when can we expect, when can we expect it? Name of the book? Uh, the name is uh, Bookshops and Bone Dust, and I believe they're aiming to do it like on a one-year release cadence. So it would be at the start of next November-ish, I think is the plan. Um, the the wheels turn slower in Trad Pub because, you know, the things are scheduled and you, the orders for the books, they really had to pull strings to get this done, I believe. Um, uh, so it's uh the the covers in process now you know all all these things will happen and then it will come out in a reasonably regular time 
Uh, we just had a couple people in the chat. I just wanted to pop up real quick. Andrew's Hello. here. Andrew. Oh, hey, it's Andrew. Andrew. One of the Hi, best. Andrew. Love your work. One yeah. of the best. Um, he's oh, also excited he's about Young Viv. Uh, <laughs> As am I. <laughs> Andrew's awesome. Uh, we also have Kyle with us. Oh, Kyle. Love Legends and Lattes. I read it twice this year. Once physically and once audio. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say that, um, you know, a lot of my respect for you said being a, a great author is uh, being a narrator. Like I mm -hmm. tried, I told this story before on page chewing, I had to do a clip uh, for a podcast that was going on of, of my own book. And I fumbled over, you know, a paragraph 15 times, butchered it. This is something I wrote, right? Like I'm, I'm sitting and... When I was doing my own audiobook and working with the audiobook narrators, I just I just gained so much respect for for them being able to do that because it's not just you're not just talking, you're not just reading. You're acting, you're playing a character, multiple characters. There's all the intonation and there's like I mean just I mean how did you how do you do that and how did you get started with with uh, with being an audiobook narrator? Um so I'll do the get started first cuz that's easier. Um, I used to read to my kids all the time, really liked doing it, loved doing the voices, all the stuff. Um, they grew out of needing it. Uh, and I stumbled across ACX, which is a service that Amazon runs, which allows authors to put up their books for narration and for narrators to audition for them and then ultimately facilitate the publishing of those to Audible. So it just makes it accessible to indies. Um, and I happen to have equipment for recording VO because I am, was whatever, a game developer and had gotten that equipment for recording VO so I could do it from home without having to go into a studio. Um, and so I started doing it and it turned out I really liked it. So I just kept doing it on the side for fun for years. Um, mm. And then I think the first, the first thing that I did that, that like got real traction was Will White's cradle series so i just hitched myself to his wagon um but <laughs> dragging along in his wake um but i, I also I, I absolutely loved those books so that's that's kind of how i got started um and eventually at some point i made games for a long time and uh, uh the wheels started to like leave the ground on the audiobooks and it was like you know what i really could just switch to doing this and i could just do it and i could not uh i could not release games and stress out and work insane hours and uh <laughs> uh the tone is just book people are cool people so working in the sphere of books is just like a very it's a it's a really great place to be um as far as doing the craft of it i mean it's like anything else there's you know a lot of iterative work that goes into just getting good at it. it's just practicing doing it but i mean at at, at in, in essence it's about Extracting what the author's trying to say and making sure that you get that across. You make sure that when somebody listens to it, they're getting what the author intended. Or at least that's that's what most people do. Um, and there's a lots of components to that. There's obviously the dialogue and the character and making that sound natural and effortless is a specific kind of skill. But the narrative narration is a different kind of skill. You'll also discuss, so a lot of people try and um, hire voice actors who do like game VO or commercial VO to read an audiobook. And you can almost always tell because they're not used to doing narrative because it's a very different skill than dialogue 
or like announcement. So they tend to have everything kind of feels like it's always at max level. <laughs> and there's not this, this um, elasticity to the narrative. Uh, to me, like the narrative, all the stuff in between the dialogue is kind of like the soundtrack. This is like what, you know, if I was scoring the movie version of this, what's the tone of this? What gets across the feeling that the author is trying to do, which is, again, very different from the dialogue. And so effortlessly seeming, moving between those two things, I think, is what makes audiobooks work well. Because you're constantly just mainlining the tone of the book in a way that makes it come to life for you. And you don't have to do this extra work of, of, uh, of interpreting it in your brain because it's been pre-interpreted for you. Um, some people don't like that because they're like, well, maybe they wouldn't interpret it exactly the way I would. And again, for, for a narrator, I think the challenge is you're trying to give them what the author wanted. And that's, that's the best you can do. Hmm. What, uh, what, um, what habits do you have or what, what kind of... Uh... What, how do you prepare when you're about to narrate an audiobook? Do you, do you have something for your voice or for your, for your throat? Or what, what are some things that you do to make sure that you can, you can maintain the, your, your pitch and everything on your voice? So I'm the worst. Steve is practicing with the, with the short stories, right? So he's trying to well, get those insider tips. Well, I've, I've, read, I've read a few short stories. I try and be under 1,000 words, and it takes me a good three or four hours to get through them. So, yeah. um, so I have very little prep. Um, my voice already sounds like it was dragged behind something. So, um, <laughs> it's, I, I generally just go, um, I, I worried about it more earlier on, but at a certain point, there's just a comfort level you get with your voice and what it sounds like that you're just, you're just fine. I think female narrators often have to do a little bit more prep because, um, their, their voice perceptibly changes more over the course of the day. Like when you wake up and your vocal cords are relaxed, there's a bigger difference in how you sound so often. I think they'll have to warm up to, to make sure that the tension in their throat is closer to how it's going to be after they've worked for a while so that there's not a bigger swing. For somebody like me, I just sound like trash anyway. So it's just, it's fine. You just leave it. Um, uh, most of the prep I do is just going to be script prep, um, which for me is really streamlined at this point. I read a lot of books. So it's mostly, and I also read a lot of fantasy. So usually that involves getting a, getting a, a PDF, probably converting it to a Word doc, pulling it into Word, doing a spell check so it finds all the weird words they made up. So I have a big list of all the stuff I need to ask them how they actually want me to pronounce. Um, and quickly identifying the characters throughout, um, searching for tags about accents or brogues or, you know, whatever else. Um, and doing a quick skim read so that I make sure I understand who the characters are and nobody shows up Irish on page 583 after I've already voiced God knows how many hours of dialogue for them. So I don't have to redo anything. Um, and then depending on the author, there's a certain amount of work that's just like, some authors are like really particular, like this guy is played by Robert Downey Jr. in the movie. And that is the tone <laughs> I want for him. And others are like, I don't care. So you, you kind of get what information you can get. And then you just go. Hmm. Um, as far as if you're, if you're doing your short and you want like, you want to like advice about how to get your speed up. Um, if you're just recording it open, mm -hmm. like without using something like punch and roll, that's going to increase your time and also your edit time afterward. So most professional narrators at this point use a system called punch and roll, which is included in most DAWs at this point, where if you mess up, you can move the audio playhead back to right before you messed up 
and then you press a specific button and it will give you a little pre-roll of however many seconds you specify. And then when you start talking, it'll just softly blend it in. So when you're done, it's just a continuous piece of audio that's actually ostensibly correct. Um, and you don't have to go and edit out all the time, mess times you messed up or anything else or stitch it together. Um, right. I don't know if you're working that way or not, but you can save yourself an enormous amount of time if you do. Yeah, I've, I've tried to get into App, uh, Appleton, but I haven't uh, spent enough time to kind of, you know, learn how to use it very well. Yeah, um, a lot of narrators use uh, Reaper or Studio One, which are both really affordable, easy-peasy DAWs. Um, I use Adobe Audition because I'm a nerd and I have a subscription to Adobe for all this other junk. And uh, uh, But yeah, yeah, it's remarkably accessible now. <laughs> you're, in, you're in a safe space for nerds. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> We're all in this yeah. together at this yeah. point. That goes without saying, yeah. Yeah, the amount of go. time we spend doing this stuff for literal zero pay, <laughs> I think we're pretty simply <laughs> yep. in, that, in that world. <laughs> um, I did want to pop this question up from Andrew and feel free to dodge it, you know, if you'd like. But he says, without naming names, do you have any author horror stories where they were so hard to work with? Um. Generally, authors are nice people, almost always. Um, I've had some that were like a scheduling challenge, like things not showing up when they needed to show up. And I'm pretty tightly scheduled, so that can be challenging. Um, in general, it's not a big problem. In general, it's not a big problem. My biggest problem comes with things like uh, manuscripts that, let's say, were indifferently edited. <laughs> because the amount of um, on-the-fly surgery you have to do to fix those can be a challenge. Um, the most challenging the most challenging of those that I did was a translation, which was roughly translated, so much so that I got carte blanche to just rewrite the book on the fly as I read it to make it really? make sense which was not a thing that I recommend that anyone do. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're Don't playing do that. fire there. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. It's hard. Um, ultimately, I think the, the audio product was better. It would have sounded very strange if I had read it as is. But it's not, <laughs> it's not the ideal. I've, I, so I've kind of like sidelong answered this question. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was to say. You know, feel free to, you know, dodge it or shake Just, it off. We put a little English <laughs> on it. Um, <laughs> the fifth. <laughs> that was very tactful. That was said very tactfully. Uh, that was well done. <laughs> um, at the risk of going back just a, a couple topics, uh, Paramita had an amazing question that I'm really curious about. When you were talking about the titles of your books, mm -hmm. uh, she pointed out there's some alliteration there. Legends and Lattes, Bookshops and Bone Dust. Please share your thought process behind these lovely semi-alliterative titles. Excellent question. Um, yeah, she, she kills I feel like I'm I feel like I'm locked into the alliteration now um, after the first book. I feel like it has to be maintained as you know going forward. Uh, for the first book, I just had the title first. It was literally just the first thing I had. Um, after the idea that I wanted to do this, you know, the Hallmark movie fantasy novel, Legends and Lattes was just the first thing I had because I was knew it was going to be about a coffee shop, and it just seemed like. This is the obvious way to go. I, I've I've bound up it's I've bound up the the idea of the book here. 
You're going to get that it's fantasy. You're going to get that it's about a coffee shop. And you're going to get that the tone is going to be somewhat light. And and we're set. Um, and the next thing I wrote was the blurb. <laughs> and then an outline. Um, so I wish I could say there was a lot more thought that went into it than that. But mostly I liked the way it sounded. I thought it was catchy. And I think it got everything, maybe not everything, but a lot of what you needed to know about the book packed into it. The uh, the other second book that was going to exist, well, what I was going to write was called Murders and Magestones. So mm. uh, clearly the alliteration was, is definitely going to continue to be in effect. <laughs> it's easy to remember. I think it's a good marketing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, it should have been a court of thorns and lattes or something. <laughs> we have, it feels like we have these waves of like naming, you know, yeah, that's the Blanc of Blanc and Blanc. <laughs> <laughs> the blank of blank and blank, you know. Um, I don't know if you want to merge with the no, the, no. the fairy smut market. Yeah, but yeah we got a little bit spicier. Yeah. The really spicy version is coming up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can do a collab with Sergey Moss, and you know, I want to see that title. <laughs> I would read that in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, Sergey Moss. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me something. So, obviously, your experience. Uh, audiobook narrator and now you're soon as you continue to write books are going to be experienced author do you think one is going to be harder than the other as both these careers go kind of parallel narration is infinitely easier so just and i think it always will be um because you somebody else already did most of the hard work i think the i think i've said before it's like uh they baked the cake and all i gotta do is put some icing on it you know um and it's very schedulable. Like, if I've got a book, I know how long it's going to take me to do it. I know how long it's going to take to narrate. It's not that big of a deal. And when I'm done, I dust off my hands and I move on to the next one and I'm happy. Um, books are a lot more fraught. You know, you think you know what you're going to do. The rubber hits the road and you're like, oops, I guess not. And uh, you predict how long it's going to take and then you discover, you know what? No, I guess I'm going to need another couple weeks. And oh no, uh, there's a fundamental problem that I didn't see and now I've got to go back and fix it. Um, they're just, they're also, they're riskier for you like personally because you're putting a ghost of yourself in there. Like like you said, that the, the uh, there's a lot more of you in it than there is in an audiobook. And so if people don't like it, that's that you're, you've got more personal exposure, I think. Um, so while I do like it, I... I can't imagine being able to produce at the level that a lot of indie authors produce personally, because struggling to find the heart of a story and something that I personally relate to that I can wrap the rest of the story around is, it's like a lot of work and it's not, it's not like planable work. You know, if you try and force it, it just goes very wrong, which is, at least that's been my experience so far. Um, so uh, the challenge for me right now is mostly like rearranging my life to allow both. So I'm, I tend to be scheduled very far out for audiobooks. I'm scheduled to like 2026 20, or something. So, wow. um, I, wow. uh, it's wow. like 200 and 240 books or something on my schedule. So there's a lot of books because uh, largely oh. this is because of series. So especially in the genres that I narrate, uh, fantasy and like game lit and progression fantasy. And also there's been kind of like this, this, new um this new push to convert royal road web serials into books 
where they're taking books that already have millions of words and they're lopping them up into really substantial books and releasing them extremely fast. Like, okay, we're going to do 12 volumes of a book that's 22 hours per volume. When can you do those? It does not take very long before having a few parallel series like that consumes a vast quantity of your calendar. Um, but, but I already had this kind of pinned in and set, and then the book came out, and it was like, oh, <laughs> I need to write another one um, because I'm contractually obliged. And also I need to support this, and I'm interested in doing it. You know, I like it. So now a lot of it is trying to figure out what the new what the new sea level is for audiobooks versus writing and trying to sort that out on my schedule without blowing my life to bits, trying to do too much at the same time. Um, yeah. And ideally, I will find that that comfortable balance where it's like I've got the right amount of time to write and here's how much I will probably write a year. And then the rest of the time I'm I'm narrating, which I again, I love. Do you have an agent for your the books that you narrate to or do you filter that out by yourself? No, there's there's really not a lot of need for an agent in the audiobook realm because the authors just come to you. You become known for doing it and people are like, hey, will you narrate my book? And I'll say, yes, as long as you're fine with the time that I have available to narrate it. <laughs> um, right. As long as you're fine in three years. <laughs> yeah, it's fine in three years. Um, and some of that is because certain small publishers and authors get slots. They're like, I know I'm going to have about 70% of the books on my schedule have not been written. So it's more like a pre-booking of time. Like, I know this series is going to be six volumes long, and I've written one, and I'm going to have five more. So let's 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 plan ahead so that I don't get locked out and I can't get them released on time. Um, it's more of like a administrative an administrative nightmare than an actual work nightmare. Um, so um, just just before we move on far from this, I just saw this comment and I had to put it up. My fairy husband drinks lattes. Sounds like a great novel. <laughs> it's the collab we've all been waiting for. My um, extremely sexy fairy husband. Right. We got to put oh, something yeah. sexy in there. He's got to be wearing a tutu. He's got to be wearing a tutu. Tutu. <laughs> uh, Chris also called us out. Travis wins the award for having a better setup than the YouTubers. Oh, and yeah. well, he's right. Well, <laughs> well you know. I have to make sure that when the airplane flies over, it doesn't ruin my work. So this thing weighs about a ton and a half. <laughs> and last one here is Tammy's here. So I just want to say oh, hi, Tammy. Tammy. For... Hi, Tammy. So this is something I don't know. I feel ashamed I don't know it. but And I shouldn't assume this, but is there an audiobook for Legends and Lattes? And did you narrate it? And do you plan to narrate all your own audiobooks for the books you write. There is an audiobook. I released it at the same time as the book because it was easy for me. Um, and I, I, I did narrate it. Um, it took two days and it was the easiest narration I've ever done in my life. Um, um, also, when I, when Tor acquired it and Macmillan acquired the audiobook rights, they then had to license my version. And it's part of my agreement that I get to narrate any of my books if I want to. So, um, Part of it is when I'm writing it, I'm basically narrating it in my brain anyway. It's I, you, after, when you read out loud out loud for thousands of hours, your brain starts to rewire a little bit to how you read print on a page. So I can basically hear myself doing things as I'm writing or reading. It's very it's a little odd, but um, I know exactly how it's supposed to be read. 
No, I get it. Not to that degree, but just when you're editing, I edit out loud. I, oh, yeah. So it's so powerful to do things out loud. Yeah. yeah that's what well, you catch mistakes, right? yeah. yeah. And does my dialogue ring true? I'm just going to say it out loud. Oh, wait, no. I, actually, I can't even say these words together. This is really... <laughs> These consonants do not belong in such proximity. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting to hear you guys say that in the context of a book, because I have no you know, experience with narration, but I do have a lot of experience with editing um, documents for companies um, mm -hmm. on the back end. And I will never send something in until I read the whole thing out loud at least three times, because that will show you so many errors or so many things that just don't sound right. It will. Yeah. It also has, so there's a kind of like an unexpected benefit to being a narrator and a writer, which is that when you're reading books out loud that you didn't write, you're, you're also noticing a lot more than just like editorial issues. You're noticing how the book hits you and how the prose functions for you because um, you know when you have to get out and push as a narrator. Like this is really lagging now, or we're repeating information or whatever. Um, I've, I've, I'm really having to do extra work to make sure that we maintain the tension of the scene or, mm. you know, the, the, the narrative interest for the listener. And conversely, when something works great, you're like, wow, that, that worked really well. So it's kind of almost like going to a writing workshop where people are reading their stuff out loud and you're learning a lot for yourself in the reading of those it, and the quality doesn't matter. It can be a great book. It could be a terrible book. There's lessons to be learned in all of them. And you're basically doing that on a tight loop every day, all the time for years. And I know that this has influenced a lot about the way that I write. I've just, it's, it's like having this amazing ongoing lesson that you get as a narrator for the same reason that you can find mistakes in your own work when you're reading out loud or someone else's work editorially you're learning all these other tiny lessons they're incredibly useful and that shape how or at the very least they shape your taste for how you're going to write you're like it's really clear what i like now in prose and it's clearly really clear what i don't so i include the stuff i like and i get rid of the stuff i don't like i learned through through doing narration that i really dislike um super, superfluous detail so i mentioned will white earlier he's very popular and i think one of the reasons that Will's books hit so well is because he only writes the good parts. If it's not the good parts, he just doesn't put it in the book. He will find a way, if he's got to get this information communicated, he will find a way to fold it into the good parts. You know, you don't ever have like a 10-page meeting where people are sitting down to make sure that person A knows what they need to know so they can do act B. He's, he's optimized all that away, and it's really powerful and I think it's one of the reasons that his books are so enjoyable to read. And so I ended up, I think, internalizing a lot of that. I'm not saying I'm as good of a writer as Will White, but I've internalized all kinds of lessons from doing that. They're like super valuable to me. Um, and that just was an, a benefit I never, ever expected. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Andrew had a comment specifically about Cradle. Perfect timing. Uh, it's mm. funny you say that. I consume Cradle on audio and physical readers almost always rate it lower. And I'm like, what? We didn't read the same book. <laughs> so clearly it's um, coming through. Um, I think that, so another thing that I've noticed on physical versus audio is that people rate things more on Audible. I think you get, you get a lot more audio ratings a lot of the time. And I'm not sure if that's just like the point where they ask for the ratings, but you often get, at least in these genres, a lot more ratings on 
auto audio. Um, I don't know. Um, of course, all of almost all of Will's books are rated incredibly well <laughs> on both ends because they're just really good books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Cradle's and been on my TBR for ages. One day. One day. It's really good. Here's my advice for you on Cradle. You must read the first three books. So Cradle okay. is a lot of a it's it's a lot about the the group of people that gets assembled. It has will make some really amazingly great characters. But you start with one and then you get the second one like kind of toward the end of the first book. And then the third one shows up partway through the second book. And until you get to like three and you've got enough of the critical mass of people, you just don't know what you're in for. And about the middle of book three, the pedal goes down and it never comes back up. And it's one of the only series I've ever read where every book is better than the previous book. And it just escalates in awesomeness as it goes. Um, the other really cool thing about it is that also, unlike a lot of other books, it expands the world, it expands the cast, but it doesn't bog down. With so many fantasy series, you get to book six, and the only thing that happens in book six is that one day of real time passed so that we could tend to all the little you know, plot threads and characters on the other side of the continent and whatever else. But Will has managed to make it just as propulsive in book 10 as it was in book two, and which I think is a real feat. I'm just on the Will fan club here. Um, I will let him know that he needs to pay me for this, you know, further endorsement after the podcast. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have to have him on here so that we can. You really should. You really should. Will is awesome. We uh, we were talking the other day. Had a little kind of a state of the podcast kind of thing. He was one one of our names on the top of the list. So Will is a fabulous person. I yeah. Yeah, we're probably going to reach out to him and say, hey, Travis said. Yeah, should... Travis said. Travis said only terrible things. And uh, would you like to come on and refute them? Yeah. <laughs> we'll be kind to give you the platform to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Travis, what do you what do you think is, what can you attribute to the explosion of audiobooks in general? Like, you know, I mean, there's, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of data and, you know, some of you know some of the research I've done has to do with you know people who now, um, because of certain uh, challenges, they they consume audio uh, better as well, or maybe they can't. They actually can't, um, you know, consume written form. Maybe they're visually impaired, et cetera. Like, but what do you think is 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 the reason for this explosion of, of popularity of audiobooks in the last you know I'd say five to seven years? I I mean I I going back seven years, I mean audiobooks weren't that much of a thing and now it's very pervasive i think there's probably a combination of things one is the the prevalence of smartphones you know and in days of yore you had to get cds i still have some of them and it was cumbersome and a pain in the butt me too um and you know until until you hit the phone reading you know getting audiobooks on like an i an ipod mini or something it's still pretty cumbersome and the space limitations were big mm -hmm. um so once everybody had a smartphone, it's like a sweet spot where you've got enough space, you've got an interface, you can get to them easily, you can manage them easily. Um, and then you kind of combine that with Amazon taking, taking over Audible and Audible becoming part of Amazon and interlinking that with books so that you've got like discounts when you want to buy the audiobook after you get the ebook and WhisperSync and the credit system that they use where... People get into their their subscription and they're constantly consuming credits. I think it's kind of like a perfect storm of those things, and just the fact that it's it's a way that you can entertain yourself 
in a world where all where we're all used to entertaining ourselves all the time, right? If you've got a phone all the time, well, if I can't look at my phone and I don't have constant entertainment and I'm doing something that it does not require my engaged thought, I can still be entertaining myself and it doesn't cost very much. And I've already got the device I need to do it in my pocket. So I think you put all those things together and I think it, I, I think that's largely the reason why. Um, also, there's, it's not a, it's not art that becomes obsolete, right? An audiobook that was recorded five years ago is, is fine. It's still an audiobook. It still sounds just like it's going to be. There's not some magical new technology that you need to upgrade to get the better audiobook. It just works, right? Just like a book. It's not like video games where if it's like 10 years old, you're like, ah, that's kind of, yeah, I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a sort of digital, you know, the special effects never have to get any better. The movie never has to be, you know, your CG doesn't have to improve next year. It always works. Okay. I'm holding up for the original Tecmo Bowl. That was the best, the best <laughs> games ever. I know I'm old, but yeah, man, Tecmo Bowl Jackson used to run over people like, there was no tomorrow. So. Going, going way back there, P.O. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said I'm old, right? It was, so. it was a good game. Though, yeah. yeah, it was an amazing game. <laughs> I think part of uh, maybe what contributes as well to what you just mentioned, which is a really good point, is that there's not a, a visual component to it. So even on YouTube, you find that if you've posted... There's some videos that we call evergreen content that you know someone can come back to. Book reviews are one of those. But you find that because it's a visual medium, I, I think people feel weird watching something that's dated my favorite books of 2020 in 2022. People just don't engage with visual content in that way. It's dated yeah. in, in, a, in a very specific way. So I think you make a really good point with that. I'd never thought of it that way before with audiobooks. Like we have books on tape that when I was a kid, I, <laughs> I never returned to the library. So they're going to come get me now. But <laughs> I still have some books on tape that I found I don't have a tape player anymore, but they're there. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I've got stacks of books on CDs and I, I don't know if there's a CD player in this house. You know, yeah. when was the last time I put a CD in anything? Woof. Yeah. My mom still has a, an eight track tape and it works. It works. An eight track tape player and the tapes still work and the tapes, I mean, they probably would blow up if you ran them more than once, but it still works. They exist, right? They exist. <laughs> um, this might be another hot take. Andrew's full of them today, but uh, thoughts on AI narrators? Ah, great question, Andrew. That's, that's I a mean, hot topic right now. AI everything. AI writers, um, AI I'm art. clearly AI not art. a fan of AI narration. I'm, so, one, I think AI narration is basically inferior. Um, a lot of times when people are trying to automate away stuff, they're trying to do something that's at least of the same quality or more consistently better, right? AI narration is not as good as a normal human. And I don't think anybody expects it to be for quite a few years. Um, and there's also degrees of good. Like anybody can read an audiobook, right? It can sound like a human reading an audiobook, but it doesn't mean it's a good audiobook. Mm -hmm. You're going to have an actual human read you an audiobook that's terrible. <laughs> and most AI that's reading audiobooks is reading basically an inferior version. You can always, you can find the tells, but think about fiction. I, I, I think that AI narration is probably going to take over a lot of nonfiction and like uh, instructional, instructional print stuff. Like if you're reading textbooks, audiobooks, or like self-help or things like that, I think that's going to take over really fast. 
Because one, I think a lot of people listen to it at 2x anyway, and they aren't looking for your, like your inflection. They're just there for information delivery in an audible, in an audible way. And so I think that stuff's just going to take over. But if you look at something like fiction, or let's take fantasy, for instance, A, you've got multiple voices for characters, which is more and more prevalent. You've got accents. You've got foreign pronunciations. You've got made-up pronunciations that the author might be pretty particular about. And this is not stuff that you can easily train an AI to do. Um, if you want to flag that this chunk of dialogue needs to be spoken in, then the dwarf happens to be Scottish-sounding-ish. I mean, how do you even tell an AI to flag that? You just can't put the book in and have that come out. So you've either got somebody who has to go through the book and flag everything, which is a not insignificant task that you still have to pay a human being to do. You might as well just pay a narrator at that point. So I think there's a, there's a section of fiction that's kind of protected from this or where you're going to have this happening and it's going to be the cheaper garbage version, um, which, again, is not great um, because I think that you... All right, so I'm going to back up here. There are good things about AI narration and making this available to everybody because you have people who like, you know, uh, who can't, who, who you have audio for the blind. Why shouldn't they be able to consume any book on the planet at a reasonable quality level? There's a lot of value in that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody, it's too expensive to make an audio book of this, but they can at least listen to the book that they otherwise can't read at all. And so it's hard not to be a proponent of that because you want this content to be accessible for everybody. There's another side to that, which is that when you produce a bunch of mediocre content that floods the market, you know, it, it makes it harder to find stuff. I mean, it's like looking at Steam these days. There's just, there's so much, how are you even going to find anything? You're looking at like this very small band of stuff. It makes it harder to find the pretty good stuff that maybe is not as hugely popular because it just becomes buried. And that's a really unfortunate side effect. Um... Also, it's, there's people who are just going to lose their jobs. There's people who are currently reading nonfiction and who are currently reading like um, the news updates for The New Yorker or whatever and who are currently reading textbooks. Um, and people are just going to stop paying them to do it, which sucks. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of counter arguments to that will be like, well, that's just the way automation works. You know, what about all the people who were, you know, shoeing horses? But again... Cars move a lot faster than horses, and you can objectively say that getting a car from point A to point B, functionally, it works better. Like, hmm. But AI narration, again, is not. It's like, yes, we have a crappier, inferior version of this, and you're probably going to pay about a similar amount as a consumer to get it. Um, you didn't get anything improved at all. You just moved money from artists working on this to probably some tech bros. So I'm not so hot about that. Um, I could probably talk about this a lot and I'm trying not to do it. And like a really, really like annoyed, like pay artists to do their work thing, because I really do think that we should pay artists and that art is important. And I don't, I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be commodified in that way. And again, to have people, I want people removing the boring crap from our lives, not removing the artistry. Please aim your tech cannon at stuff that nobody wants to do and that doesn't enrich other humans. You know, make robot vacuums. Nobody actually wants to do that job. Don't make robot artists. People, that's that's part of the human experience. We don't need to automate that away. Well, it's, um, it's, uh, it's scary, too, because the, the more people use AI, the, the better it gets. And then it, it yeah. drives out everyone. So the, 
it just keeps getting better and better. And before you know it, it's Skynet. So yeah, be careful. Um, and unless you're replacing that with like, uh, you know, a, a universal basic income so people can just survive, you're just, you're just moving the money to people who didn't probably need it from people who probably did, you know, artists are notoriously underpaid, which is, you know, pay artists, pay your artists, please. Yeah. Buy real art from real artists. They need it. They deserve it. And it makes life better for everybody. Um, it's like with AI art. Um, mm -hmm. no, the, the genie is never going back in the bottle. Yeah. Now that it's out. But the main thing that galls me about it is the fact that it's basically, it functions by mulching up the work of other artists without their, without their permission. Um, and I find a lot of the arguments for the fact that they can't do anything about this pretty uncompelling. Like if you go and use an AI art tool, you can say, I want art in the style of so-and-so. Clearly the information is paired with the art in the yeah. data set. It understands that Norman Rockwell painted this yeah. or, you know, uh, Chris Foss or, or whoever the, the artist is known. So at the tech level, you can simply exclude those people's names from the search. You can say, we're, we're not going to allow you to do things in the style of an artist. We're not going to allow you to use their style and put it on like a cheap suit. You know, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm, I'm about to head into screed territory. So I'm going to back off. Okay. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think well, you're, well, you're in a, a space where most of us agree with you. Yeah, um, I think all of us do. It's one yeah. of those things that has always irked me uh, where you know, even in, in academia, there's certain things that are looked down upon, um, certain mm -hmm. sciences, you know, and I just find it ironic that things that usually on the, are on the lower rung of society, quote unquote, are the ones that everyone engages with in their free time. No one yep. goes home and engages with, you know, well, maybe some particular people, let me not <laughs> pay with a broad brush. Maybe people go home and do math formulas, but most people will go home and engage in some kind of art, be it yep. visual medium, books. You know, appreciating someone else's, you know, immersing themselves in someone else's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I, sorry, go ahead, Travis. I'm going to say one, one of the main disappointments I have is that I think that a lot of these tools could be incredibly powerful tools for artists to use, but they are not directed that way. Like if I, as an artist with a big a visual artist with a lot of work can use one of these AI tools, feed all my art into it and say, you know what? I want to visualize eight different book covers that I might do. I want to try out some angles. And instead of me spending, you know, 10 hours doing those things, it could give me some quick looks using my own art that facilitates and lets me work better, you know, like super Photoshop. Um, that sounds like an amazing use for AI as opposed to using somebody else's art. Um, but it, it, my, a lot of my frustration is, is this not directed toward making art, making artists' lives better and allowing them to produce even more great art for us all to consume and enjoy. It's about making weird, shambling homunculuses of their art that other people can try on. And, and that's, anyway, I'm getting right back into screed territory. <laughs> Let it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, it, it, I don't think it would be a pretty bleak world. I mean, can you envision a world where AI writes, does all the cover, like writes speculative fiction, like writes fiction, there's, there's no more writers. There's no more artists doing 
artwork. Um, there's no, you know, obviously that would translate to music. Um, yep. Can you imagine a world where essentially most of the creatives don't exist? Like, I can't imagine. It's awful. I don't want to live in a world like that, right? Well, and so. the thing is that all of these things are trained on existing creative work. And as that creative work becomes more and more supplanted with creative work that's just derivative of other creative work, that's just AI-generated creative work, it's going to start to eat itself. It can only make derivative work of something that's already derivative, infinite derivatives with no creative injection that just get more and more bland. <laughs> you know, so, what happens when AI art can only be trained on other AI art instead of actual legitimate, you know, inspired creative art? It's only got glue to work with at that point. You know, it's just, I hate to, I hate to imagine a future where we get to the point where so little creative art is publicly shown that so much that a lot of what we get is just this this gross soup of previously regenerated stuff. <laughs> it's a very fair point. I think most mm -hmm. people would agree with you, at least in this community. Yeah. Um, but I know time goes very quickly. So before we finish up, <laughs> I have been tracking uh, some comments. And if uh, PL and Steve don't mind if I bring it back to Legends and Latte just to close this out, because sure. I've seen quite a few really good comments Absolutely. specifically about the book. Um, and if we go all the way back here, Paramita always with her amazing questions. <laughs> In the very beginning, she had a fantastic question about your choice of character for Legends and Lattes. Uh, our Tolkien-esque view of orcs is intrinsically evil. Female orcs don't feature. What motivated you to choose such an unconventional MC with such nuanced characterization? Again, a brilliant um, question. Initially, I wanted to make sure I did an MC that was not the kind of character that I normally got to read. Um, as a narrator, I normally get to read dudes and a specific kind of dude. Um, and I wanted to read somebody who was the opposite of that. Further, I wanted the book to be mostly about characters that um, that uh, contradicted like the, the common image of what they would be. The succubus who is an artist the you know the orc who wants to start a coffee shop the um you know the 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 bricklayer who wants to be a musician the the stable that ends up as a coffee shop everything was not what it first appeared so i f i wanted to choose a character who was not at all what you would think of as being you know a barista and i wanted to choose a character that was not at all what you would think of for me to narrate and again, I wasn't thinking anybody else would care that I narrated this, but um, that that was the main reason why I chose Viv. Um, as far as like nuanced characterization, initially I thought this was going to be funnier than it was. Um, I thought the book was going to be more of a nod and a wink, like my initial ha 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 Hallmark, you know, Forgotten Realms vibe. But it only took about a chapter before it wasn't. Um, and Viv ended up having a lot of me in her. So Viv is somebody in her 40s who stops doing a job that she has done her entire life, totally switches to a different industry, moves to a new city and discovers a community of people that she didn't know that she needed and, and that, that she fit in with. Um, I am a person who did the same job until their 40s, switched to another industry, found you know a, a whole community of people that i didn't expect were there and that i fit in with unexpectedly so there was a lot of like for me it was very it was very relatable stuff um and 
it, it just ended up that all everything got told earnestly instead of as a joke. And I liked it that way. And it felt better to me. I felt like it was giving me something I wanted. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think a, a theme that really runs through it, at least from my perspective, is give, you know, give something a chance. <laughs> you know, you don't know until you try or until you yeah. talk to someone, right? Yeah. Very much on that theme, we have one more question uh, from the same person. Uh, some of the most powerful themes in your book relate to love, community, rallying together in moments of crisis. Is this consistent with your beliefs and experiences or is it, is it an utopian ideal? I mean, um, I think that in the book, that I'm sure things turn out, you know, maybe more happily than they might have in the real world. But I don't think that those are their futile endeavors. Um, when I was younger, I didn't think as much about how important kindness is. I always kind of had this like mistaken idea that people who were kind and uh, who were thoughtful about others were like, that's just the way they had always been. And it must have been easy for them. And maybe they were a little simple, you know, you know, because in almost all of our popular fiction, it's like anybody who's nice is going to get ground under the wheels pretty quick or they're sacrificed so that somebody else can have revenge. Right. You know, sure, we have nice people in our books, but they're not the people who triumph or the people who win or the people who make things happen. But as I got older, it really became apparent to me personally that being kind and being good to other people is work. And it's work that have, pays dividends when you do it that aren't always apparent and that it's and that I value those people, the people who do that. And I respect what they do as a choice that they made to do something hard. And I, I liked writing a book about people who were largely that way. People who chose to be, they chose to do it. Viv chose to do this. She had to make the choice over and over to not go back to the sword, to be a certain kind of person. And I like that as a personal struggle, not the personal struggle to get revenge or to win the war or do whatever, but to choose to be a good person. And I, for me, that's a relatable struggle because it feels like a choice that, you know, I kind of have to make all the time choosing you know, because it isn't easy if somebody does you wrong or their circumstances are bad. That's a hard thing. It's not like it's a mundane hard thing. So people don't talk about it very much and they certainly don't glorify it in fiction. But I think it's like it's worth it's worth having represented in fiction. Definitely. Um, and something that I pulled for as well is the feeling of community. Um, that takes sacrifice. That takes being kind if you want to build a community with people around you. And I think the pandemic, you know, talking about this coming out at a time that it struck people the right way, community was hard to come by and the interactions were online. And we've talked before about online is not, people are not kind in the online yeah. space. And yeah, I often. think a lot of us tried with Zoom for a while to put, I feel like a lot of people went through these waves of like Zoom, like get togethers and stuff, trying to replicate that feeling of community. And it's not the same. It's not the same. And, and I think people just, I think people did that because they felt the lack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that point though. Kindness is a choice. You nailed that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Keep that in my mind. <laughs> Little pocket of my brain for the future. <laughs> Uh, we had one, uh, one more that I had in the backlog, which is from Tammy, a totally unserious question. So please feel free to skip. I think it's serious though, but what baked goods almost, but did not make the cut 
onto Thimble's menu? Ooh, um, what were some of the ones I thought about? Um, I was going to do, um, well, this isn't a baked bud, but there was going to be a mocha. This chocolate showed up and it was like, why is there not a mocha on this menu? And it just like, <laughs> right. I didn't have the rest of the narrative beat to go along with it. Um, I thought about scones. I'm a really big f scone fan. So I was thinking about scones. Um, and, uh, I was largely thinking about scones. I really like scones. <laughs> um, um, I thought about something like vaguely donutty, you know, but it was just, it felt like too close to the cinnamon roll. Um, and uh, <laughs> cookies, there were, you know, um, ginger cookies were one of the things I thought about. Um, mm, I can just sit here and think about baked goods now, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that actually kind of leads into a question that I had menu connected because you know, coffee is a world unto its own. You know, there are people mm -hmm. who just live and breathe different types of coffee. And I have dabbled, but truly just pinky toe <laughs> level of dabble. <laughs> so uh, I was curious uh, with your choice to make coffee like the thing, the bean water in, in mm -hmm. this book. Uh, are you a coffee aficionado? Is this something that you delve into in your life? Or? I love coffee. Um, so last uh, November for my wife and I's anniversary, we got ourselves one of those automated espresso machines that like grind the beans and does all the things and you can hit the buttons. And I really love it. Um, we use it a lot. In fact, I was, I was having trouble sleeping after that. You know, I was waking up a lot and I was like just sure it had to do with the daylight savings time change. But no, that was that was not the reason at all. Um, and anyway, so I really enjoy coffee. But I also I will just drink black plain coffee from whatever. I'm I'm kind of like I really like good coffee, but I will also drink terrible coffee. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm a snob, but, but I do appreciate a really really good one. Um, my uh, my go to coffee when I want to make a nice one for me is a mezzo mezzo, which is like a little bit of the kind of the crystallized sugar in the bottom and you steam it a little bit. And then you have basically an Americano topped with an espresso topped with a little steamed milk. And it's just a little bit sweet. It's got, you know, it doesn't have the overwhelming milk of like a latte. Um, and it's got a little bit of water to give it a little bit more, a little bit more time to drink it. And I really like that. So I have basically that every morning. And then I get less and less ambitious with every other coffee I have during the day. <laughs> I was going to say I'd never even heard of that before, but I'm sold. <laughs> Sounds delicious. <laughs> um, you've got a, other, a lot of other um, scone fans here. Scones are quite <laughs> I want scones now. <laughs> um, Andrew says, I'm addicted to lattes. I'm not even kidding. Before LNL, I did not drink them. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to have pushed you over the edge. <laughs> you have converted someone. Uh, Josh here says, really enjoyed your book, although I can't stand coffee. Uh-oh, wrong time for me to put this up. <laughs> but I stayed for the baked goods and the focus on mental health. Excellent. And that's just fine. You know, not everybody has to like coffee. But a lot of people, even if you don't like coffee, still like hanging out in a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some yes. people who don't like the taste of coffee do like the smell of it. There's a there's a lot of extra. I don't know. There, I'm sure there's people who hate all of it. But 
coffee shop. There's no better place mm. to study or read than a coffee shop. I agree with that 100%. Yes. Okay. I even made sure to have the student in the coffee shop who doesn't buy anything and just uses the Wi-Fi. Um, Guilty. Oh, I saw that character. I was like, that. You saw it. I was like, I'm I recognize you. But I know that was me. I know that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and the shop owner probably was just as annoyed as I am reading about this <laughs> <right> now. So, <laughs> 100%. Uh, I just wanted to ask PL and Steve, are you guys coffee fans? I realized I never asked you. Yes. Before. Yes. yes. <laughs> just a blanket, yes. I'm not a, I'm not a snob, but I enjoy good coffee. I only drink coffee. I like certain types of coffee, but I'm not a regular coffee drinker. Because I work shift work, I need coffee at certain times, but I'm very sensitive to it for some reason. That, like, if, you know, I have friends that they can drink coffee like right before bed and they sleep and sound like a baby. I would be up all night. So yep. um, I kind of watch my coffee uh, intake because, you know, um, it seems to hit me. Uh, harder than some people. So, my wife is a serial coffee drinker. She has to has to have her has to have her caffeine. So. <laughs> it becomes a necessity after a while. Yeah, I have kind of a just a really quick question because I'm a I'm an audio and and gear nerd. But I was wondering what kind of microphone you use. This is a Mojave MA two hundred one, Vet. Um, I used to use a Mojave MA two hundred, which is a tube based mic but it's just a little too sensitive to humidity. Um, so, and this one sounds 99% the same, and I really love it. Um, and that's going into an Apollo Twin, um, which I like because it has some onboard stuff I use uh, that happens in hardware that doesn't ha I don't have to do in the software side on the DAW. Um, overall, it's a pretty simple setup, but yeah, I really do like this mic. I've used it for years, and... Nice. It never moves from this spot. <laughs> I noticed the uh, the headphones too. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. You've got also they're they're like kittens you for your ears. Yeah, yeah. We do match. We do match. Oh, these are incredibly comfortable. Yes, they're so nice. Yeah. <laughs> I have changed these pads out. I don't. I don't know how many times. I love that they're modular and that you can order in new bits. Yeah. Mm. I have my kids hooked on them too, so they each have a pairs of these headphones down they're so comfortable and if you sit with these on your head they don't weigh on your head like so many headphones do they're just very comfortable when and if you spend six hours in a box it's really nice to have a comfortable set of headphones yeah. uh, for, for people so. who are listening it's the uh the bear dynamic um mm -hmm. dt dt seven seven seventy yeah the <laughs> 85 ohm yeah yeah I'll be Googling that after <laughs> because oh, now great. I feel like they're I got to up my game. Yeah. So many words Tara's I Tara's got some foam over there for the headphones now. We're going to have to get I do. Chewing I they have these headphones. kind of like, these sort of like satiny pads. I don't know what the actual material yeah. is on the, on the ear cups. And that's pretty great. Yeah. It's pretty great. And it, it covers your ear. It goes around your ear. So it's not like on your ear. So it's nice and comfortable mm. and mm -hmm. you forget that they're on for a while. Yep. Which is really important for narration. You don't want the bleed, so it keeps mm -hmm. the sound inside. You know, they got the over ears. Um, yeah, they're they're fabulous. Yeah. Sounds like you also need to send a check to Bear, whatever the company name <laughs> is, because you've now sold me. So. Yes, I'll just go through all of the equipment yeah. in my booth. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why not? Yeah. The endorsement check will be in the mail, Travis. The endorsement check will be in the mail. <laughs> 
so I always like to finish the interviews. PL and Steve know what the, this question because I ask it to all of our guests. I find it very fascinating. I'm obsessed with origin stories uh, and mythologies and things like that. So I would love to know in your life if there's a story, not necessarily a book, maybe it was a video game or um, you know a movie, just a story in your life that you think ignited your love for stories and has kept you involved with them in the way that you have been uh, with video games, with audio, with now an author yourself. Um, is there a story that sticks out from your Nickel life? Nickel by Terry Jones. Okay. So Terry Jones was one of Monty Python, was one of the Monty Python crew, and he wrote a YA book, kids book called Nicobobinus about a, uh, a boy named Nicobobinus and his friend Rosie who lived in Venice. And uh, rather than weeding the front step, Rosie convinced them to go and find the Land of Dragons. And along the way, very quickly, various bits of Nicobobinus was were turned into gold by a golden man, and then they had to find the cure for that, which involved bloodthirsty monks and, like, um, uh, an ocean of mountains and a place called the City of Cries. And it's a weird, it's really weird. It's funny. It's strange. I've always loved it. I own a copy of it. Um, it's an amazing book. My, uh, I believe it was my fifth grade teacher read it out loud to us. And I've been taken with it ever since. I've and never nobody heard has of ever it. heard of it. No, nobody has ever heard, heard of it. But now you'll look it up. Now you'll now look I it up. Um, huh. Fascinating. Well, as usual, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. This was just a fantastic talk. I feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> It doesn't feel like it's been an hour and a half, but really appreciate you coming on. And uh, before we go, uh, just give everyone a chance to do a little bit of a sign off for those who maybe missed the beginning uh, when we were doing our intros. Would you mind telling everyone, Travis, where they can find you, uh, works they can look forward to, uh, just basically where to go if they want to know more about you? I'm most active on Twitter, at Travis Baldry. Um, I'm also around on Instagram and TikTok, the same places. Uh, I guess you can look for another book from me next year, probably in November. And uh, apart from that, I, an audiobook or two from me comes about, out about every month, or three or four. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm around. Okay. Steve? Uh, you can find me at Steve Talks Books on YouTube or at pagetween.com on our forums. So everyone go come by if you haven't already. Yeah. And uh, you can find me mostly on Twitter at Peelster Writes. And uh, on, I always give a shout out to Before we Go Blog and the wonderful Beth Tabler, who is the head of Before we Go Blog and also a very prominent leader in Grand Art Magazine. Uh, she's kind of our all of our bosses too, because we're all bloggers there. So uh, shout out to Beth. And uh, you can find me uh, on Goodreads, my reviews, on Steve's forum now a lot, which is page chewing, um, all things page chewing. And of course, beside my two wonderful co-hosts, whenever we do stuff together, which is kind of like one of the highlights of my week, whatever it happens. So I like that whenever we do stuff, because there's a lot of different stuff that we do, <laughs> deep dives and all. Um, if you're watching this, this, uh, 
episode of Page Chewing, you probably already know me, but just in case you stumbled here, my name is Taylor. Uh, my channel is Made Between the Pages. You can see it below. Uh, you can find me, of course, on this channel, on any episodes of Page Chewing, on Steve's channel as well, the forums. Before we go blog, a lot of this has been mentioned. <laughs> uh, my personal Twitter, uh, personal book Twitter, um, is also always in the description. So you can find me there as well. And uh, that's where we do a lot of our advertising for these episodes, if you want to check out. Uh, what's coming in 2023. But couldn't have asked for a better episode to close out 2022. Once again, thank you so much for coming on, Travis. Uh, thank and you so much for having me. For stopping by. Yeah, right. of course. Thank you, Travis. It's yeah. amazing. You, you've, uh, you should be, uh, I know you probably don't feel yourself responsible for this, but you've basically been on the avant-garde of the new cozy fantasy movement. So, you know, I mean, bravo, you started a, a trend, I think, and it, it seems like it's right now it's an enduring one. So, Congratulations on all the success and can't wait to read more of your works and uh, hope we get to chat to you again soon. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Thanks everyone for coming by in the chat. We appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bye guys. See you.